Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisbee and in today's program I talk to Hugh Hendry of Eclectica Asset Management and Dr. Francis Clarsons of Peers, a wealth peer group, tells us what the super rich have been doing and are doing with their money. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com I'm talking now to Hugh Hendry. Hugh is the Principal Portfolio Manager of Eclectica Asset Management. He leads both the investment thinking and the research team and is notorious for his contrarian, outspoken views. He has 18 years industry experience with Daily Gifford, CSAM and Ode Asset Management after graduating from Strathclyde University in 1990. Now, Eclectica managed various funds, including, I believe, two agricultural funds, a UK equities fund, a European equities fund, a global equities fund, and the unauthorised Eclectica fund, which I understand is up 50% this month. Is that right, Hugh? Um, that is correct. When you say it's unauthorised, I hasten to, to tell you it's, uh, it's a hedge fund, so it's uh, an offshore uh, uh, regulated business. Hugh, what, are you, what do you like at the moment? What are you buying? What are you selling? Um, well, you have, you have to remember that the present environment, it's all about the return of your capital as opposed to the return on your capital. And for that very reason, the only thing that intrigues me just now that we own um, is government bonds and uh, bets that interest rates across the world will be cut further than people anticipate at the present time. Um, Mr Bernanke cut interest rates yesterday by half a percent. How much more do you think he's... How, how low will they go? Um, the debate with regard to American interest rates, they've been at the forefront, and I think the, the steps they've taken. I mean, they've, in the last year, they've brought rates down from five and a quarter to, to one percent, and, and I applaud that decision. I don't necessarily applaud anything else, um, regarding the Federal Reserve. But um, the debate, actually, and the profit opportunity, there is a disagreement presently in the capital markets. Um, the consensus is that the Fed may even go as low as 50 basis points. But within the year, within 12 months, the America will be raising interest rates. And I think that's just potty. In other words, there's no chance of that happening? There's, I, I believe it's more likely that we'll experience something similar to Japan. Um, the authorities, especially as we see in this country, the central banks are being dragged, screaming and shouting to lower interest rates. And they're only doing it as the, you know, as the economy falls around them. So when they get to very low interest rates, it'll be, I'm afraid it will be a function of the economy proving to be incredibly weak. And for that very reason, they will keep interest rates low for a considerable period of time, a la like Japan. I've heard many people say that this um, 
uh, entire boom that has led to the bust was brought on in part by uh, interest rates being held at artificially low levels for too long a time by Mr Greenspan after the dot-com um, bust. Uh, they're attempting to create another boom with low interest rates. Will it work? I don't know if they're necessarily attempting to create another boom this time around, um, but certainly the, the the nature of your question is correct, and we have to take it we have to take it back slightly further. Um, we got into this problem because central bankers wanted to be liked. Remember, the Queen of England gave Greenspan a medal. We we gave him a knighthood. Now. That's not the role of central banking. Central banking should be curmudgeonly. They should have a party, but at 10 o'clock they switch the music off, they close the bar and they send everyone home. And They're not the most popular hosts. They failed to do that. Instead, they kept bailing out um, risk-takers. And they had a great opportunity. And the opportunity was almost 10 years to the day. Uh, 10 years ago, we had... Uh, the catastrophic collapse of LTCM, which was a prominent hedge fund, which was run by two Nobel Prize winners in economics and finance. And what it revealed was unbelievable leverage, i.e. Um, pyramiding of risk-taking, 100 times leveraged. And it went bust. And in the process, it threatened to bring down one of the Wall Street broking houses, such as a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers. Actually, in that instance, Bear Stearns was free, but someone like Lehman's or Morgan Stanley or Goldman's could have been impaired by that event. And they, they were rescued. They were rescued by the Federal Reserve, lowering interest rates. Um, and in doing so, they created the boom of NASDAQ and technology. And then it collapsed, and they lowered interest rates, and it created the boom of housing. There won't be a boom this time with the Fed funds at 1% because Wall Street financing has gone. It has gone kaput. So this will prove to be the first recovery without the assistance of Wall Street. And what that means is it will be a very slow recovery. Um, now, recovery is not a word I use often just now because uh, we're still dealing with the recession. But when the recovery emerges, it will prove to be weaker um, than previous recoveries because we've taken out this lexicon of Wall Street financing, SIVs, MBS, CDOs, it's all gone. So the ability to create paper money has been eroded somewhat. This recession is inevitable. How long will it last? Will it be a recession? Will it be a depression? Well, we're in recession. Um, they, they try and fool us, and they fool us with this spurious precision that a recession is two back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP. Forget it. That's for statisticians. They're boring people. The reality, as everyone listening to this knows, is that the UK has been in a recession for at least a year. You know, it, was a, it was August last year when we had queues at Northern Rock. That was a recession, and it's only intensified. Bear in mind that data that we just received yesterday revealed that uh, there was more mortgages repaid than mortgages taken out. Credit is contracting in the economy, and, and I'm afraid the fabric of the economy is just falling around us. So it's going to be prolonged. Now, it is 
incredibly rare to have two consecutive years of negative GDP growth, right? That is a given. That is going to happen. That is going to happen. Uh, the speculation is what happens next. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> we have a, a monetary crisis, we have a financial crisis, we have a banking crisis. What would you be doing if you were in charge? What's the solution to all this? Or do we just, do we, is it just a matter of waiting for the system to purge itself? An Austrian schooled economist, you would go for the, the purging. And we've never adopted Austrian economics, despite its intellectual rigour, because democracies deem it to be just too profoundly uh, damaging. Um, it's just untenable that we have 20 or 30% unemployment, which would be the implication. Um, the, the fury that I have, which leads me to do interviews with people like yourself, <laughs> is um, that we fool ourselves by taking expert opinion. Um, now here I am and I'm responsible for um, almost a billion dollars of other people's money and I tell you I never take expert opinion and please don't think of me as an expert, think of me as a heretic um, and my, my, my fury is vented at the wise men in inverted commas who are given responsibility to set interest rates in this country and setting interest rates is like setting a course for a, for a plane. The, the role of the pilot is to prevent stall speed. If the plane stalls, then the controls of the, the plane lose their responsive edge. You, you're, you're gone. We had the opportunity um, a year ago to drastically reduce interest rates, like the Americans did, and we failed to do so. And in the process, the economy has stalled and therefore, what you'll see, my prophecy is that interest rates in the next 12 months will come down to unprecedented low levels. But it won't make a difference. Um, and it didn't need to be that way. One thing that is a source of great worry to me, I've been looking at the um, Baltic Shipping Index. And it's obviously, as we all know, fallen off a cliff. But... Nobody trusts, nobody's putting anything on a boat because they don't think they're going to be paid for it at the other end. And similarly, nobody's buying anything because they don't think what they're buying is going to be delivered. And trust has completely gone. And that whole area of shipping is so crucial to global trade. Without trust, it freezes up. What comments do you have on that and, and how worried are you by that? Well, it's a direct consequence of the decision to allow Lehman Brothers to go bankrupt. It's not a lack of trust, or it is, but another way of saying it is that Lehman's were one of the major letter of credit institutions which provided the financing for the payment of such shipments across the world. And their bankruptcy shattered any remaining confidence in the financial system. So finance has fled, and finance is, think of finance as the oxygen of society. You remove oxygen and we would all, we would all fall over dead. That is what's happening. So the Baltic Freight Index has lost almost 90% of its value. And that's not the only thing that happened. We learned last week that um, Volvo, who manufacture trucks, their orders have fallen 
not by 10%, but they've fallen in the order of 99%. I promise you this is becoming like a chapter from Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Um, if you haven't read Anne, Anne Rand, um, she is just fantastic. She needed an editor. She was, um, she was a, from a very wealthy family in Russia, um, and they lost everything as the as the communists took over. So she had this deep cynicism about the role of authorities, and she she wrote the book. She wrote the book about um, all the great entrepreneurs in society suddenly disappearing and and the economy seizing up. Um, that's what's happening today. We had um, Sarkozy and uh, Jean-Claude Trichet calling for some kind of new Bretton Woods, and indeed I understand there's a meeting going on in about 10 or 15 days' time. How can there be a new Bretton Woods? What, what replacement for the dollar is there? And in fact, what is your outlook for the dollar? Mm. I mean, heavens, you know, once you start reciting French names, I recoil in great <laughs> I saw you grimace when I said that. I, yeah. I thought it was my French accent. I didn't realise it was the names themselves. Um, the French. <laughs> um... First of all, what is Bretton Woods? Um, Bretton Woods was um, a monetary system which anchored the, world, the world's currencies to the dollar. The American economy was the largest and most dynamic economy in the world. Um, and the deal was that if you were a foreigner and you owned dollars, you could redeem those dollars for ounces of gold and they would repay you the paper money with gold valued at $35 an ounce. Um, in the 1960s, the American government began committing itself to a massive expansion of government. It spent money, and it spent money over and above its reserves of gold, and therefore it was unable and unwilling to honour that promise, and the Bretton Woods system came to an end. Um, and in its absence, you know, gold went from $35 to 800 so we had, we had inflation. The stock market in the last 30 years, has, the American stock market, has gone up almost 30 times. So once you unleashed, you, you removed an anchor, you had all of this speculation. So I, I appreciate the notion of trying to implement an anchor back into the system. But I fear that when the French are leading the intellectual <laughs> debate, that um, I fear the consequences. You can't go back to a gold-backed currency. It's just not realistic. Yeah, the, the, that's not what they're calling for. Well, again, you know, the, you know, they'll make a mess of it. And put me in charge. Yeah, and, and and what you'd get is the economy, an economy like the UK and the leading uh, economies of the world, the G7, they expand on average at about 6% in nominal terms, year after year. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but 6 is the average. So as a central banker, we have to be conscious of when that nominal GDP growth is accelerating beyond the band, and that should be, that's a sign to remove the punchable. We should be looking at uh, the average rise in the stock market or asset prices over a three-year cumulative uh, period, and when that is running in double digits, again, it is a warning to raise interest rates. So what we need is less expert opinion in central banks and more common sense 
um, with regard to measuring inflation um, with the view that it, it captures asset prices as well as a basket of goods in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Are you bullish on the dollar? Because we've had a, a, a phenomenal run in the dollar, and it's basically been the dollar up, everything else down. It looks like we might have reached uh, some kind of upside exhaustion at the end of last week, beginning of this week, and we might have seen a little bit of a turn. What's your outlook? A little bit of a turn, but um, there's a wonderful chap, Richard Russell, uh, of the Dow Theory Letters. He's been a market strategist since 1954. He, t- he tells the tale that um, when you take on debt... You're shorting dollars. You're shorting cash. And we live in a world where people have too much debt and they're cashing in their, their chips. So we live in a world which is deleveraging. And as you deleverage, you're buying cash. You're buying dollars. We haven't completed the deleveraging. There's still too much debt. Um, and so I think the dollar continues to rally. This deleveraging... You say there's still too much debt. I mean, that bodes incredibly badly for, say, our housing market. It bodes, it bodes badly for just about everything. How much longer do you think uh, deleveraging goes on for? Um, I've got a house in the Cotswolds, and um, a, a developer came in, and he spruced up some cottages. And he sold one of those cottages... Uh, quite a nice and a pretty cottage, but he sold it for £850,000. I think it has two bedrooms. And it's my view that we won't see that price again for at least 25 years. Um, 25 years seems to be a figure which which comes round. The stock market famously peaked in 1929, and it took 25 years before we saw a new price high. Um, the oil price peaked at $40, and it took 25 years before we exceeded that. Um, gold, gold's always a bit different. It took gold 27 years, but yeah. 27 is 25 in my book. And look at Japan. Japan peaked famously at the end of 1989. So it peaked 18 years ago mm-hmm. at 40000 and it's only 8000 today. So give it another seven years, and maybe, maybe it'll be 40000 that's an interesting cycle. I haven't heard that. I've heard, you know, the four-year cycle of various others, but I haven't heard that one. And the 20-year commodity cycle. I, I, let's talk about commodities. Are you, are you bullish about commodities? Um, at the present time, I am profoundly bearish on commodities, but... Even from these low levels? Absolutely. Um, however, um, our view on commodities, um, like, any, like any market, we think... There are three parts. It's chamber music. There are three parts. Um, and there's the, the introduction where crazy heretics like myself, yeah? So in 1999, 2000, I was buying mining stocks, British mining stocks, Antofagasta. Mm-hmm. And Antofagasta from 1999 to the end of 2005 rose in price 20 times, from a pound to 20 pounds before they did a stock split. Um, and that was kind of it for me. And from 2006 and 2007, I didn't take risk in the industrial complex. We, we certainly did, and we launched an agricultural product that was mm-hmm. slightly different. Um, but our view is the heretics get it. Um, the institutions fight it. They don't want to buy it. Um, they say it's cyclical. But at the end, of course, the stocks have done so well, they become large market capitalizations, and they buy it. 
Yeah. And then you get a cyclical event and they think, crikey, I was right all along. And they rush. So we're, we're in that cyclical event. We're in the intermission where all of the big dinosaurs who didn't buy in 1999 but bought in 2007 and 2008, they're now puking. Yeah, they're now, they can't sell them quickly enough. Um, but in the future, and by the future I mean next decade, um, they'll come back again. Okay. There's a notion that we witnessed a bubble in commodities. I believe that's wrong. We experienced a bubble in credit, which pushed all prices higher. But we didn't see irrational exuberance in commodities, and especially in agricultural commodities. And as an example, I, I want to tell you about a remarkable event. Um, which is occurring just now. Just now we're approaching the harvest, the corn harvest in North America. We're taking it off the, off the land now. And the North American corn harvest is responsible, one way or another, for feeding 40%, 40% of mankind. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, either directly or through animal feedstuff. Um, and yet... The value of the American corn harvest is only 30 basis points of GDP. It's 0.03% of GDP. Yeah? Now, we get a home run in agriculture if it represents 1.5% or 2% of GDP. That would be a bubble. Yeah? Uh, we're not there yet. Um, I think we will be, but... It needs a different monetary environment, not this monetary environment. I went to see uh, Jim Rogers speak last week, and uh, he is obviously very bullish about uh, commodities, but more than anything, he's bullish about his agricultural commodities. He basically argued that um, commodities have gone down in value because of this huge deleveraging that's taken place, but they were the last thing to start falling, and they'll be the first thing to start rising. Would you agree with that? I, I agree with that. Um, Jim's a strange guy, I tell you. Um, I've had some direct correspondence from him, and, and he's remarkably intelligent, remarkably passionate, but quite obstinate as well. Um, but, I, but I agree with, with that notion. Um, now, hey, hey, listen, here I am. Now, my point to you is I'm not a promoter. Yeah? I've got... An agricultural futures fund. Are you still invested or are you sitting... Of course, in no, no, we're fully invested. We remain fully invested um, in that fund and in the agricultural equity fund. And you buy grain futures? We buy grain futures and, and, and soybean futures and wheat futures and cotton futures and sugar futures and you know, lean hog futures, etc. And presumably sometimes you short them if you think... No, no, no. Uh, it's, it's a long-term bull market and we're just long. We're, we're just open for business, if you will. We, you know, we believe... Um, at some point, like Jim Rogers says, um, they'll come back to life. Um, and likewise, we own a portfolio of stocks such as fertilizer companies like Potash and tractor companies like John Deere. Yeah? Um, so typically what happens is someone in my position with those unit trusts, I'm desperate for people to invest in it. Mm -hmm. yeah? And so I'm a promoter. I've got to tell you a positive story. And Jim is a bit guilty of that. Yeah? He's got to tell you a positive story at all times. I won't do that. I just won't do that. Um, you're welcome to invest in my funds, but at the present time, I believe um, the upside is limited. 
and there is greater upside in government bonds. Um, now, despite that, um, I still have a commitment to, to that part, but it's a small part of my overall portfolio mm -hmm. today. The bonds are larger. I think everyone should have a small part of their portfolio in agricultural commodities. But I ain't going to sit here and tell you, and it's true, but I ain't going to tell you that Potash, a company listed in Canada, is on two times earnings. Yeah, and it's so cheap that you've got to fill your boots. It is cheap, but you know what? There's a time for these things, and the time just isn't yet. Mm -hmm. If I was to say to you that I see a rally in commodities between now and the spring, would you agree? I've absolutely no idea. You know, I read my palm, and you might tell you. Uh, anyone that, that tells you what the stock market or any particular asset price is going to do between now and next June is fooling themselves and in danger of fooling you. Um, I can give you with greater certainty predictions on where prices will be in, in 30 years as opposed to 30 days. Gold and silver, what's your opinion? I love them, but I hate them. <laughs> uh, Are you bullish on gold? Do you own gold? Presently, no. Let me tell you a story. Um, we talked about Bretton Woods, and Bretton Woods came to an end in August um, 1970. Hope I got that right. So 71, 1970, I think. 71, 71, thank you. Um, President Nixon brought it to, to an end. And between August 1971 and the end of 1973, the gold price rose from $35 on average to about $200. But between 1973 and 1974, the Fed raised interest rates and we had uh, a tremendous collapse in the stock market and the economy was very weak. Events which are kind of similar to today. And what you have to realize is that gold fell from $200 to 100 You could have bought gold in the summer of 1976 at a hundred bucks. Yeah? Now, history doesn't repeat itself, but I find that jarring. It sticks in my mind. Um, I find interest rates in Europe astonishingly high. The economy's heading for the rocks. The stock market has fallen. Heck, in September, everything fell. Even my government bonds fell in September, right? So, my supposition is we might, yeah, my life's about what might happen. We might see the gold price half in value. Now, it peaked at almost, what, $1,100. So I'm thinking, and my charts are kind of suggesting, that it's not inconceivable that gold might trade around $500, $550. And if that happens, then at the same time, Today, a 20-year British gold yields 4.5%. Now, if gold is 500 or 550, I promise you the gold will yield 2.5%. So I stand to make 40% in only government bonds. And if that comes to pass, at that point, at that point, I will fill my boots with physical gold. I will buy those 16 ounces, those big bars. <laughs> um, it's interesting what the gold price is doing at the moment because in, in the dollars it's in a quite steep downtrend but you know it's not far off its all-time highs in euros and sterling and various other currencies. Well, it's certainly at its all-time high in Icelandic krona. <laughs>
Um, but um, hey, look, it's it's deflationary just now, and everything goes down in a deflationary world, including gold. I think Robert Prechter of the Elliott Wave, and I'm not asking you to do wave counts, but um, the Elliott Wave service offers some some kind of kooky insights into society. And you know, he wrote that book, Conquer the Crash. Um, he wrote it too early, of course, but um, crikey, he got everything right. And part of his notion was that even gold and silver would come under pressure, and that's proving the case. Yes, but... He also said you should own gold and silver, and Precht has been bearish on gold and silver for so long, and he's been wrong for so long, that, uh, you know, I kind, of, I kind of discount what he says. In, in other areas, he's, he's been very right. God, you're, you, you bear grudges. Don't get me wrong. I conquer the crash. I, conquer it's the crash. a real no. page turn of that book. No, it's a great but don't get me wrong. Um, in 2003, I made 50% from my hedge fund, and it was from gold and from silver. If I was to say to you that gold shares were the best performing asset coming out of the credit contractions of 1873 and 1929, would that persuade you that gold stocks might be a good sector to be in? Well, I don't need any persuading. Again, it's a question of timing. Get your timing wrong, and you can be intellectually right, but you make no money. Your clients take it all away from you. Um, and I'll go one step further. I have written to my clients in my newsletters, I've written to them, um, with the intellectual case for why gold might trade as high as... Actually, when I did the sums, it was $6,000, but it was so outrageous, I changed it to $3,000. Yeah. I think we trade there, right? Um, but I, I'm engaged to be smarter than, than, yeah. than I probably am allowed to be. And it just my gut feeling that I'll be able to buy gold at 500 or 550 yeah? And we might see just those dramatic price highs. So don't get me wrong, it's just tiny. I heard you say uh, you were long the short bond and uh, short the long bond. I was long, the, I, we're, we're long two-year treasury, US treasury bonds, and we're short 10-year. Um, but that's us just being, you know... Just capturing the difference. Smart, you know. Okay. Uh, what, what, what that is, that is a bet on interest rates. Yeah, it's a bet on interest rates coming down in the manner that they are, and it's a bet that interest rates will remain on the floor. And if that proves to be the case, if the Fed stays at 50 or 100 basis points, and it does so for three years or four years or five years, then I guarantee you that gold will be 2000 or $3,000. That's, that's the mechanism. I've got two more questions for you, Hugh. Oil and energy, what's your view there? Um, again, in the present environment, it is... Devastating, and you don't want to be anywhere near them. Um, we are proponents of the idea of paradox and irony. And so we believe that we're going to have gold trading at $3,000. We might have, let's pick an absurd figure for, for oil, $400, $500. We think that's, that's feasible. And it's feasible because we're having this deflation today. And because of the deflation, because of the credit crunch, these wonderfully entrepreneurial businesses, these explorers, they're being closed down. There is, it is just inconceivable that someone will commit $10 billion of their shareholder funds cozying up with the filthy Russians in a filthy part of the planet. Yeah? It's not going to happen. No. Right? So we know that Royal Dutch and BP and Exxon, that if they don't replace what they're pulling out of the ground each year, 
then they've only got 10 years' life left. And therefore, we know they're not going to replace it. And therefore, we know that within 10 or 15 years' time, um, the barrels of oil taken out of the, the earth, now today it averages 80 million, 80 million barrels a day, it's going to be something like 60, given this credit crunch. Now, consumption is going to decline because the economy is going to be weak. But if it declines, it might be 75. Yeah. So there's going to be an almighty panic. Again, not tomorrow, not next year, but next decade. Yeah. Um, oil remains one of the ch cheapest things on earth. And when future historians look back on us, they will call us um, petrol carbon or carbon man, yeah? Just like we call people the Iron Age yeah. this time, yeah? Now, you think about it. I was looking at my, uh, my fuel bill. I'd got one of these Jeeps or whatever, um, you know, four by fours, and it does 25 miles per gallon. And when oil was at 150 bucks, and with the enormous excise tax we pay, I worked out that I was paying about seven pence to travel a mile. Now, in that car, I can get four adults, three kids, luggage, yeah? Can you imagine if I was in Soho and I jumped into one of those rickshaws and I said to the guy, I'll give you seven P to take me, my three mates, my three kids, and all of our luggage a mile, yeah? He would, you know, he would decline the, the offer. <laughs> I think even in Delhi he'd decline. I think so. Um, last question for you. You well, actually, no, let's do two questions for you. You've you've been sitting on your long positions in a uh, still believing in the um, commodity story. You've taken a hit. You've taken a big hit. Would you sell now, or would you? Uh... No, no. The, the view was that you should only have enough committed to agriculture that you would never have to sell it. Yeah. Okay. So the, the the trick was. Um, sizing the position, um, this is a you know we're like the Chinese. This is a long march. It's made up of lots of little steps. So have a little portfolio because it contains enormous optionality. If we get this right, it goes up a huge amount. But that means don't be greedy. It means you don't need to commit. Mm -hmm. If you commit all of your resources, you'll be wiped. You've been wiped out in the last three months. And so in five years' time, you're going to see the prices, or seven years' time, you're going to see the prices that you argued for, but you're not there. You're, yeah. You don't want to be um, a poor, clever guy. You want yeah. to be a rich, dumb guy. Yeah. Good answer. Last question. The small investor, what would you be doing with your money now? Buying UK government bonds. UK? Hey, buy any UK, buy, buy any government bonds. Um, I mean, personally, I like I'm everyone very else. very bearish on sterling. Yes, and so am I. And, and actually, so let me... Uh, let me retract that. I mean, buy UK government bonds, um, you know. Um, but um, like everyone else, I took my money out of the bank. I, you know, um, I, I, I discovered I had a bit of cash. Uh, I promise you, I don't carry a wallet. I pinch yeah. a tenner from my wife's purse every morning. She knows about it, so it's, it's an arrangement we have. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, she, she started watching CNBC. <laughs> I come home and it's like... Honey, what are you doing? And she says, well, you know, are we making money today? And, she, and I, went, I went home about a month ago and she said, what are, you, what are we going to do with all of that money in the bank? And I said, what money? You know, uh, and we were in, you know, you know we're, I guess we were quite wealthy. Um, and we're in, uh, we bank with Rothschilds. Yeah? And do you think Gordon Brown's going to bail out Rothschilds? I, <laughs> maybe with, you know, that seems to be, you know, 
Manderson's best mate, so who knows? Um, but yeah, I wouldn't like to take that risk. So like everyone else, I redeemed my deposits. Yeah. Um, now I have aspirations to own a gin palace in Mallorca. A yeah. gin palace. Yeah, a big house in Mallorca. <laughs> okay. um, and sadly, they don't accept pounds. They they need euros. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, like you, I have misgivings. Sterling is a hedge fund currency. Hedge funds are going down. Um, hopefully, with the the exception of my own, and I, th- I think we've made a good fist of it this year. We're up twenty percent. Um, so I bought thirty-year German boons. We call it the Uber Bund. Yeah. yeah. And you get you get the same yield, but so you get four and a half percent. But it's in euros, um, and any stockbroker can buy you these things. They're quite straightforward. Um, you you hold them until you get a yield of let's say two and a half. Let's not be too greedy, two and a half percent, and then buy your gold. Then buy your gold. All right. Well, great answer. And uh, I'm sorry. Let me ask you one more question. You just, you just said in that last sentence there, hedge funds are going down. How many have gone down? How many more are going down? Is is this the end of the end of the hedge fund industry as we know it? As we know it, yes, there will be a hedge fund industry, but it, it will return uh, from whence it came um, in the 1970s. You had Jimmy Rogers with George Soros running the Quantum Fund. It took them 10 years to accumulate 100 million dollars. Yeah, um, today we have hedge funds which are responsible for 30 billion dollars. That model is gone. Yeah. Um, hedge funds were like rebellious teenagers living at home. And what you do is you fall out with your parents and you go and set up on your own. Yeah? And what happened in the last five years is that those spotty teenagers became richer beyond their dreams. And in doing so, they became their parents. <laughs> and the cycle was complete. Very good. Well, Hugh, if um, people want to find out more about Eclectica, maybe to invest some money in some of your funds, do you want to give out some information how they can do so? The World Wide Web, Eclectica, um, dash, A for asset, M for management, dot com. Eclectica dash AM dot com. Hugh Hendry, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Francis Klaassens is a Dutch entrepreneur and multimillionaire. He's one of the many super rich who has come to London over the last 10 or 15 years. And in the time he's been here, he's set up a network for high net worth individuals, a wealth peer group called Peers, which you can find at wealthpeergroup.com. To join Peers, you must have a minimum of £5 million worth of investable assets. That's not net worth, that's investable assets. While Group 2 starts at £25 million and Group 3 starts at £50 million. Peers has about 55 members and they meet once a month to discuss the management of their money and they hear presentations in an environment where those on commission, those naughty lawyers, those naughty bankers and fund managers can't always have the influence that they would normally like to have. Well, Francis 
welcome to the show why don't we start why don't you tell us a bit about peers and uh, the organization and what you do well we started peers in uh, january of this year that's when we had our first meeting and now uh, 10 months uh, down uh, that uh, road uh, we are at 55 members and our collective assets under uh, management of our members is over one billion pounds so we start to uh, have some serious leverage uh, with uh, with say the uh, the services that concern us for instance uh, we, we have uh, now very preferential terms with uh, julius bear with Kelly suisse for instance but also hedge funds uh, usually give us uh, the discounts that they uh, normally give to introducing agents only in this case it goes directly to our members I suppose what we really want to know is, is, you know, you've got 55 super rich members who I would imagine you talk to um, fairly frequently. What have you and the other uh, and your other members been doing with your money over the past uh, six months or so? Well, over the past six months, uh, the scramble was to get into cash to begin with. And when you say a scramble, was that to, you know, to, to redeem your money from hedge funds and other... Uh, forms of investment? Uh, to, uh, not to reinvest, for instance, to begin with, uh, to redeem from hedge funds, but also to uh, sell stocks uh, and even bonds and uh, currencies we didn't like. Uh, basically, the only uh, way of preserving capital has been uh, to uh, stay in cash. And, and which cash? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's a good question. What currency do you choose? What bank do you choose to have your money with? And then should you diversify among banks because some of our members have a, a high percentage of their network now in cash and they could not afford to lose it all in one go. So they have to diversify uh, along a number of banks. Have, have some of your members been exposed to Iceland? Uh, well, some have and they couldn't uh, get out in time and some... Uh, I remember one uh, lady uh, who uh, was in Icelandic uh, uh, in an Icelandic account. Uh, she uh, liked the interest very much. Uh, she uh, talked to some members of uh, peers, and uh, she was worried. Called her manager in Iceland. He came over to London, uh, had lunch with her, and convinced her that um, uh, her money was safe. She left it with the Icelandic bank. One week later, the bank was nationalized. So that's not how we want it to go. And it teaches us that one source cannot be trusted, and that's the banks itself, or the banks themselves. And, and I mean, did some of your members see this crisis in Iceland coming a long way off? I mean, are any of your members Icelandic? Uh, no, they are not Icelandic, but uh, the rumors about uh, Icelandic banks and their weakening position... Uh, we are there already for months and for anybody to pick up who uh, has a, a circle of friends uh, in, in that uh, business. So, and, and so the movement, the recent movement has been towards cash, presumably largely the US dollar? Um, not necessarily. It depends very much on the reference currency of, uh, of the members. Uh, some are uh, uh, domiciled in the UK and prefer their pounds. Some uh, are uh, continental and they prefer their, their euros. Uh, some are diversifying currencies in the sense that uh, they uh, say to their bank, give me a basket of currencies that maintains my world buying power.
Mm-hmm. And so it's been cash, cash, cash. What's the general consensus of the UK banks? Are they considered safe? Uh, well, uh, especially the nationalized, and uh, now that they are guaranteed, uh, the, the UK banks and the Swiss banks have the preference of, uh, of the members. I see. And at the moment, um, what about gold? Have any of your members been buying gold? Uh, frankly, I don't know. I remember talking to you and trying to persuade you to buy a load of gold, not not miners, but gold itself. And 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 you kind of, you you weren't that keen on the idea because you didn't know where you'd store it. <laughs> That's one thing. But um, uh, also, my personal uh, philosophy is I do not uh, want to buy anything that doesn't come with its own management, uh, and uh, because I have uh, no uh, all bond like I have for hedge funds. Uh, I have no way of following that, uh, and I would be forced to follow it myself, which I don't want to do. Uh, that uh, sounds like you're a great delegator, which is uh, one that's supposed to be the quality of a, of a good leader. But the thing about gold is it manages itself. Uh, still, uh, there is a buying and a selling time, I guess. And uh, indeed, I don't want to uh, have anything that I cannot delegate or outsource to manage all, the management of. Is, is there a kind of group consensus how you see this credit contraction unfolding over time? We're obviously in a deflationary period now. Do you see inflation further down the road? Do you see further deleveraging? What's the kind of group feeling? Well, there is certainly going to be deleveraging. Um, we are concerned, say, about the longer term. Uh, in the longer term, uh, at some point, we are going to reach uh, stability. Uh, but we are going to reach a different stability in which uh, banks have to be scrutinized more than before, uh, even if people are in cash. But we are also looking further down the road. And we are, for instance, now talking with asset-backed lenders uh, with, for instance, a fund that is in medical care and that has survived very well. Uh, those are the kinds of investments that we would look at uh, longer term. We have, of course, been looking at uh, distressed uh, uh, securities of all kinds. But each time we talk about it, uh, some new disaster happens and we postpone the idea of uh, uh, entering the market uh, uh, until uh, a few months down the road. So um, you're, you're sitting there watching and, and uh, when you consider the time is right, you will swoop. That's the idea. Now, have the super rich been leaving London? I mean, they've been, there's been a pattern where they've been coming to London, but with the, the threatened changes in the tax laws, do you see a, an exodus? Uh, well, there was not really an exodus at the beginning of this tax year, but then again, there are also not many people came in. And so I think it's not a matter of uh, people leaving immediately, uh, but making long-term plan Bs. And other people that might have come in have not come in. There are actually so many other wealth havens around the world that uh, if uh, things do not sound so secure like uh, the UK at this at this moment, uh, people go to Monaco, they go to Belgium, they go to Holland, uh, there, there are, uh, they go to the uh, Caribbean. There are so many places uh, that there are alternatives uh, for uh, the UK. Do many of your peers, did they buy houses, many of them? Uh, not at this uh, moment. Uh, I think we have a reasonable portion of uh, uh, non-DOM members. 
uh, but they stay as they are. I, I, when when they have real estate, uh, they uh, keep it. When they didn't have real estate, they are not buying now. You probably read in the press, you hear um, this kind of outrage that uh, at the non-DOM tax laws. What, what's your opinion of those? What outrage at what law exactly? Well, people who were born in England and have, have grown up here and have always had to pay tax here, and then uh, the tax laws are more lenient to um, people who earn their money overseas, and, and uh, there's an argument saying that these people should pay tax over here, but they don't because of their non-DOM status. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have an opinion on that? Yes. I think morally they are right. Economically, it doesn't work that way. Uh, because there are so many other choices. Uh, I am from Holland. Uh, we used to have high taxes uh, for ex-entrepreneurs who had sold uh, their uh, their businesses. When I left uh, Holland in '90, uh, if I had stayed, uh, I would have paid uh, 80% in taxes. Uh, in 2000, they changed that policy because too many people are just leaving the country, mm-hmm. and they want to stay their investors in. And they have changed the laws now in such a way that it's uh, one of the most uh, benign tax tax climates uh, in uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. And they are keeping their wealthy citizens in. Because uh, it's not only a matter of foreigners coming in, it's also a matter of English domiciled uh, citizens leaving the UK. Yeah, You can find so many... Uh, UK citizens in Monaco, in Belgium, in Holland, in the Caribbean, they are making the same choice as we are making coming into the UK. And as this credit crunch stroke recession unfolds, um, and, you know, the the poorer people are going to start to lose their jobs and their houses, and there's going to be a lot of finger-pointing and a lot of playing the blame game, and, and politicians and, and central bankers will happily point the fingers at someone else. Um, do you see higher taxation for the rich as, as uh, coming down the road? Is that a, a pattern you see unfolding? I'm not so sure. Uh, taxes have to come from somewhere, but uh, uh, those in charge of uh, 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 creating uh, tax rates realize that uh, you don't only need tax laws, you also need a way to uh, get that money in. And uh, that means if you tax somebody who might uh, live in this country and just as well in another country, uh, it's the same as with uh, with companies. They they might uh, incorporate in the UK, but they might just as well do it in Ireland or in the Bahamas. So to tax or target those is probably not good tax policy, because in the end it means that you chase away people that you would like to have here. Oh, uh, Francis, it's certainly not good tax policy. That doesn't mean it won't happen. To <laughs> think. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, how is how are Alistair Darling and Gordon Brown going to raise the money to pay for all their various commitments that they're currently making and, and, and have made over the last year? Uh, I am not the authority on that, but I would raise those taxes, if, if that's their choice, on, um, uh, for instance, uh, rental value of homes or something that is more secure in... Um, 
in uh, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you tax companies or persons that might be here, but also might be somewhere else, they are actually going to choose to be somewhere else. Yeah. And so, uh, for instance, in uh, in Belgium, they they tax you on on on, on land, on houses, on cars. Uh, things uh, that that are firmly situated in their in their country, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, are not uh, engaging in moral issues, but in issues of how do we really get those taxes in our coffers. Mm-hmm. Okay, Francis, your highest uh, the 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 your member with the highest net worth. What's his or her net worth? A bit over 200 million. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, just a couple more questions, if I may, Francis. If somebody mm-hmm. had five or 25 billion worth of uh, investable assets uh, when they joined you, but as a result of losses in the markets, no longer have that net worth, do they have to leave your organization? Well, <laughs> it wouldn't be that strict to, uh, uh, to begin with also because uh, a lot of uh, people are in, uh, say, stocks and they are waiting for uh, a bounce back. And it may uh, well take one or two years, but uh, if your stock portfolio is now uh, valued at four or at three, it doesn't mean that uh, it, it won't bounce back to seven. Yeah. And f- finally, have you seen um, a lot of wealth destruction of, of your members over the past three months? I mean, have you, uh, presumably everyone's taken a hit. Mm, yes, uh, I think on average, uh, even uh, with, with the exception of people who are mostly in cash, which are those who recently sold uh, their uh, their companies or recently inherited uh, mostly, but. Otherwise, people who were, say, fully invested uh, at the beginning of the year uh, when mostly not able to revert everything into cash, so it means they've lost 15, 20, uh, and even 30%. Yeah. Um, Francis, if any of our listeners want to find out more about your organization, perhaps they have, uh, even after this um, credit crunch, £5 million worth or more of investable assets, how do they find out more about your organization and, and what you do? I think indeed uh, the website is the best. It's uh, www.wealthpeergroup.com, and there they find uh, a lengthier explanation and uh, the phone numbers and uh, contact us page that uh, that might lead them further if they want to. Okay, well, Francis Clarsons, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, thank you very much. A pleasure. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.